Well, good morning, Carney. You free? How we doing today? Good weekend. Another Huskers win. Great to be with you today. My name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carney Free. If we haven't met yet, I'd love to connect after service. I want to give a couple real quick announcements, but before we jump into this morning's message, in your handout today, you'll see an insert that includes the testimony of Dave Challey for election to the E-Free Elder Board. And just a reminder, you just heard about that in the announcement section that we'll have our annual meeting next Sunday at 4 o'clock. But I really encourage all the members of this church to be sure you attend that annual meeting. Uh, you're given an opportunity to vote on our budget and on elder elections, nominating committee elections at that meeting. Even if you're just an attender, you'd be more than welcome to attend that meeting. But this is a wonderful testimony from Dave Challey, who's applied for our elder board, and our elder board is unanimously recommending his election. Should be a great celebration time next Sunday night as we gather together for that annual meeting. Uh, yeah, there will be facts and reports and details, but also celebration of the great, the great work that God has done in this church. Also want to let you know that uh, next Sunday we will start a three-week parenthesis to our current series. So we're in this series titled, The God That Jesus Revealed, and for three weeks, starting next Sunday, we'll look at the God that Jesus didn't reveal. And uh, three specific topics, uh, three specific myths that people frequently have about God, we will seek to dispel those myths as we understand, uh, again, the God that Jesus revealed. And there are many myths that people hold about God. Let me just share a few of them that we intend to study over these next few weeks. Number one, God wants me to be happy. Oh, I'd really like that. I'd really, really like if that was uh, one of the things that God was most concerned about. But that's a myth, and we'll talk about that. Another one is, uh, if I only obey God, I'll be freed from suffering. And I think those of us who've been following Christ for some time know that's not true, but we'll, we'll navigate through that one. And then finally, uh, God is always fair. There's a kernel of truth in each of these, but they miss the point in certain ways, and they provide for us a portrait of God that isn't actually reflected by Jesus, isn't actually reflected by the Bible. And so we will uh, unpack those for a bit over those three weeks. And I just really want to encourage you, if you know folks who have been away from church for some time, or maybe you know friends, uh, seekers who are asking spiritual questions, they're not really sure what Jesus really teaches, well, what he doesn't teach, this would be a great series to invite them to for a few weeks. We'll do three weeks on that, and then after that parenthesis, we'll return to the God that Jesus revealed for a few more weeks before we get into Christmas season. Can you believe that's right around the corner? Oh, my word. To hear a little Christmas carol through those scanners in that video, that's a little bit too early for me. Well, let's pray, and then we will open up the Scriptures together. Would you join me? Gracious God in heaven, how grateful we are to know that you are here with us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Your Spirit is present with us. And so we ask you, Spirit, to lead us today. Guide us as we open up the Scriptures, as we seek to understand the Bible, which, are, which is the very Word of God. We desire to understand this, not as the words of man, but as the Word of God that you would instruct us from. Please teach us, Lord. It's not about me. It's not about anything that I say up here. It's about Christ and his word, learning to apply that to our lives. And so we say to you this morning, Lord Jesus, we avail ourselves to you. Here we are. We got lots of stuff going on in our lives. Lots of trials, lots of heartaches, 
sometimes financial issues, relational issues, and we give those all to you, asking that at this moment we might understand what you would have for our lives from your word. Please teach us now, we ask in the mighty name of Jesus, amen, amen. Well, you know, it strikes me as we come into the holiday season that this is the season of giving in which you'll see numerous opportunities to give. We just looked at that one from Operation Christmas Child, and uh, we just completed one with the Kearney Public School Clothing Drive, and there will be others, of course, in these coming months. Many, many opportunities to give a small gift that hopefully is genuinely helpful to someone. But it makes me ask the question, what is it that I hope for? What is it that you hope for when you give a small gift to someone or small gift to some organization during this Christmas season. I mean, in one sense, well, when you bring a coat for a seven-year-old boy in the city of Kearney during that KPS clothing drive, you really hope that that small offering would be a nice blessing to this young boy. Or you pack up a shoebox with Operation Christmas Child, and you hope that'll put a smile on someone's face in Nicaragua or in Uganda or wherever they might go this year. That's what you hope for. But in another sense, don't you hope for something bigger than that? In another sense, when we give something small, even through one of these charities, well, one of these ministries that we participate in, you, you hope that something bigger would happen than just putting a smile on someone's ha- face. We, we hope that uh, a warm coat for someone through the KPS clothing drive would result in a young kid feeling like he's part of a broader community that cares about him and ascribes dignity to him and gives in a dignifying way. You you hope that he would learn that maybe uh, he's not alone, that there are others in this community that that are just like him. You you hope that when you send an Operation Christmas Child box overseas that maybe a kid who gets that box, that present, and that's the only present they get, They would get the connection, there's someone in the middle of America who cares about me, and they chose to express God's love for me in this tangible way. You hope for something bigger. You hope that God would take your very small offering, whatever it might be, and multiply it into something significantly bigger, at least in someone's life. That at least is my hope whenever I participate in those ministries. And I think that's the big idea, though, that we're going to see in this morning's passage. The hope is ultimately that our small offerings would turn into something much bigger, that God would transform the small seeds that we have to offer into a much bigger harvest. And that's exactly what he does with his disciples in the passage that we're going to look at this morning out of Matthew chapter 14. We all know that we're not all that, right? At least I hope we all know we ain't all that. Can I get an amen? We're all just one out of seven billion. I'm not trying to burst anyone's bubble, but we're not all that. But we can still do great things by the power of our God when we choose to say, yes, God, would you please use me with the very small offerings that I have? We'll see a beautiful illustration of that from Jesus and his disciples in this passage. So Matthew 14, starting today at verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from 
the towns nearby. Now, what is this that he just heard? What is it that just happened? I'll pause there for just a moment before we get into the rest of the passage. Jesus is living in a very nasty time in the history of Israel in which you have both these religious leaders that we've talked about many times over these previous weeks called Pharisees and Sadducees that are now out to kill him. And the religious establishment is against the very grace and the forgiveness of God that Jesus came to offer. They're after religious works and checking your boxes, but Jesus offered grace and forgiveness. And then on top of that, you have civic leaders who likewise are going against Jesus and other religious reformers. And the civic leader that is referred to here when says Jesus heard about this, what he heard about was a civic leader by the name of Herod the Tetrarch, who is the governor of Jesus' home state, who is bloodthirsty. He is a Jewish man who is a governor, and he's bloodthirsty for any religious reformers who are gaining some kind of audience and some kind of power. And so he, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are coming after Jesus. But in addition to that, the very last episode at the beginning of chapter 14 was Herod serving up the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And nobody bats an eye because that's just Herod being Herod. That's the kind of thing that Herod did. And what happened in this previous episode is Herod has this great lust growing in his belly for a woman named Herodias, and Herodias is dancing for him, and he offers Herodias, you just tell me what you want, and I will do it for you, presumably so that he could get from her what he wanted from her. And what she wanted was the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so Herod says, sure thing, I'll get that for you, assuming that I get what I want from you. And you have this culture of intense lust, this culture of intense violence and grand brutality growing up in the highest levels of political life there in Israel. Does that sound familiar? It's fascinating to me that that occurred historically. And as it did, here is how Jesus responded. He heard... He felt a level of shock and grief. He withdrew to a desolate, quiet, solitary place so that he could be alone with his Father who is in heaven, be ministered to, to by him, and be refreshed by his God and our God. You see, there is a time to engage. There is a time to boil over with anger and rage over the injustice that we see in the world and there is also a time to retreat. And I don't know what time it is for you in your life. I'm not sure where you are with respect to the politics of the day. I'm not sure where you are with respect to issues in your family or your workplace or the world or your neighborhood. But there is always a time to engage. And there is always another time to retreat into the very presence of God where we are refilled. And Jesus had this rhythm to his life. You'll see this little diagram on the screen and on your insert that describes a beautiful rhythm that we also want to factor into our lives, that we regularly engage in the world. And then after we engage in the world, sometimes we get tired. Anyone else? I certainly do. 
You get tired, so you need to retreat. Not into television, not into Netflix binges. Retreat into the very presence of God Most High. And as you're in the presence of Jesus, you get your bucket refilled by Him. The Holy Spirit will, will refill you again as you're in God's presence. And then as you're refilled by Him, then you have a newfound energy to go engage once again. Be it in the church or in, or in the world or with your family or whatever difficult relationships that you might have. And this was the regular pattern of Jesus' life which should be so very instructive to us that if Jesus needed to retreat, retreat into the presence of his Father, might we need to retreat into the presence of our God as well? A physical doctor would say that we need two things to stay healthy. What are they? Anyone? What are the two things that a doctor always says we need to stay healthy? Diet and exercise. I heard very, very loudly from everyone. Okay? We need diet and exercise. As little as we want those, that's what we need to stay physically healthy. So also a spiritual doctor would say we need these two things to stay healthy. To stay spiritually healthy, we need to engage in people's lives. To love people in the name of God. And then we need to retreat into the very presence of God where we are loved by Him. This pattern over and over again, engage and retreat, is what we need to stay spiritually healthy healthy. So again, we see this from Jesus. He fought against evil. He protected women. He protected the disabled. He healed people. He cared for the poor. He helped people that were in great need. He had compassion on people. He looked people in their eyes. He touched them and prayed for them. And then he retreated to his Father in heaven on a regular basis on a little sea called Galilee, where he got into a boat and got alone in creation, and he got his bucket refilled by his God. Which, by the way, isn't nearly as hard as we make it. I, I think we, we make this out to be really, really difficult, but, I mean, it isn't. We all have 24 hours. We all do. I, I mean, no one has any more and no one has any less. It's a matter of prioritizing the hours that we have and choosing to dwell with some of those hours in the very presence of our God. One of the things, though, that our life group has been talking about is committing to a time of silence on a day-in and day-out basis. And we're just starting with five minutes each day. We spend five minutes per day where we extend our hands and we say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And then we go into a time of silence where we invite God to speak to us over some area of life that perhaps we're struggling. Or maybe you might have a single verse that you're meditating on right now. You meditate on that verse and you say, oh Lord Jesus, speak for your servant is listening. I avail myself to you. And then you increase from there. You increase the duration and the frequency of your holy moments with God and that renews you with spiritual power. Here's the truth that you got to hold on to from this. If you stay only in the presence of God, you will become a monastic and you will lose your influence with people. If you're only in the presence of God, you will lose all influence with people. But if you're only in the presence of people, you will lose your spiritual power. You won't have much spiritual power. You'll just have your latest and greatest thoughts and ideas, which frankly I found in my own life are not worth a hill of beans. 
But when I'm in the presence of the Lord, that's where wisdom and power comes from. So here's Jesus being refilled once again by his father. He gets his bucket refilled, and then the story goes on in verse 14. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Isn't this the greatest? Oh, don't you love the word of God, how it just teaches us how to live? I, I mean, he gets shock and grief and awe over the tragedy he's just heard about. He retreats in the presence of the father, and then he goes and he's healing people. Once again, he has compassion on people that are coming to him. If you just imagine, though, this scene, he gets out of the boat, and there's 5,000 men, which means perhaps 15,000 or so people that are waiting for him because they've heard that he would be available by that Sea of Galilee. And so they're all waiting for him, and they brought their sick to him to care, that he would care for them. And so if you imagine this scene, I mean, some people are probably coming with canes, and other people probably can't walk at all. Friends have carried them to Jesus' feet. And other people are saying, please, would you pray for me? And others are saying, I'm hungry, or my daughter has a demon, or my, my, my son, there's just something wrong with him. He, he needs your healing. And there's perhaps as many as 15,000 of them. This is an introvert's nightmare. But one by one, for hours, he is touching them. He's filled with compassion for those who are harassed and helpless. He's counseling and caring for them and praying for them. And after hours of this, evening is now approaching, and folks are getting hungry. And so the story goes on in verse 15. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. You be hospitable. You provide them some food. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down in the grass, to recline there, to take a seat and relax. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowns. And they all ate and they were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides those women and children." The need is massive. Again, you have these 5,000 growling male bellies. Why does he only enlist men? Because they can't miss a meal, right? Okay, guys can't ever miss a meal. But it was many more than 5,000. It's probably 15,000 people here. And their bellies are growling. And understandably, the disciples say, send them home, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. You care for these people. You show some hospitality to these people. They say, well, all we got is five loaves and two fish. He says, bring them to me. Bring them to me. Bring to me what you got. And he blesses his Father in heaven, and he multiplies them so it's enough to feed 15,000, and there's plenty of leftovers. Whenever God is in it, there's always more than enough. 
You see, lest we think that God cares only about the spiritual, here is Jesus, once again, caring for people's physical needs. So as we are invited in the Lord's Prayer to pray for our daily bread on a daily basis, so also here's Jesus caring for people's physical needs. I mean, he's the very embodiment of compassion. He's the very embodiment of love. He cares for people spiritually. He cares for people physically. He cares for people emotionally. He touches each of these people and cares for their physical needs. And you don't want to miss this crucial point that as they gather all together, he asks his disciples to bring what they have, as meager as their little resources are. And to state the big idea once again, he transforms their small little seeds, as he will for us, into a great harvest that is far beyond what they could have possibly asked or imagined. You know, there, there are times in the Gospels of Jesus that he does these miracles totally independently of any person. Even at the beginning of this story, he heals the sick people that are coming to him. He doesn't use anyone else to do that. And he calms the seas. He doesn't use any person to do that. He, he heals the daughter of that Canaanite woman that we were talking about last week. He doesn't use any person. He doesn't need us to do his miracles. But what this story shouts and what we dare not miss is that he often wants us to do his miracles. Do you see it there? He says, bring what you got to me. Bring your little crumbs, your five little loaves, and your two little fishes, because I want to use what you have to offer. God wants to use what I have to offer. Would you say that out loud with me? God wants to use what I have to offer. Do you believe that? They said it with much more gusto at 9.15. God wants to use what you have to offer. I mean, this is part of what he delights to do is take our measly little resources and multiply them into some great harvest. I think of those who are serving our kids downstairs. And today it's just serving a kid for an hour. But someday some of those kids are going to be doctors. And someday some of those kids are going to be pastors and missionaries. And that small service, along with many other small services, is multiplied into a great harvest beyond what we could have imagined. I think of last week, we talked about a special offering that we were going to do for Feed My Starving Children to assist those families that were devastated by this terrible hurricane, Hurricane Matthew, that came through Haiti. And this is a long-term partnership uh, that we've had with Feed My Starving Children. And my hope, my prayer was that perhaps we would be able to take a special offering last week as we'd give 5 or $10 each or the spare change that we have in our pockets, and perhaps we'd be able to raise enough money to provide food for 100 kids in southwest Haiti for a year. $11,000 were collected, which is enough to provide food for 134 kids in southwest Haiti for a year. How about that? I, I mean, a small offering. And yet God uses it with the whole of his church. He multiplies it. And 134 kids will be blessed as a result. This is the specialty of our God, is to use the very little offerings that we have for his great purposes and beyond. I, I tell you, if I had a dollar 
for every person, every time that I've heard someone say, I could not be used by God because of fill in the blank. If I had a dollar for every time that I heard that as a pastor, I would be a millionaire. I'm telling you, y'all wouldn't need to pay me. For every time that I've heard someone say, I can't be used by God because I don't have any time. I don't have any money. I can't be used by God because of my background and all of my sin. I can't be used by God because of my family and all of my terrible history. I can't be used by God because of what's going on in my life. I can't be used by God because I'm not that eloquent or I'm not that intelligent or I don't have that much to offer. Whatever it might be, that is a lie from the pit of hell and you need to send it back there. God will use you if you're willing to be used by him. He takes our measly little resources, whatever they might be, and he multiplies them beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. That's why I've underlined in my Bible, verses 17 and 18, they said to him, we have only five loaves here and only two fish. And he said, you just bring them to me. Just bring them to me. They couldn't have imagined what he was going to do in this moment. I think they are probably really perplexed. Jesus, why would we bring these to you? I mean, what are you going to do? Give everyone a crumb? Maybe a scale of fish? But what are you going to do with this? They're probably perplexed at his statement, just bring them to me. But here's a very simple statement that you want to hold on to today. Sometimes perfect obedience precedes perfect understanding. Sometimes you're not sure why God is telling you to do something, but you do it anyway. And this is a repeated theme that we find throughout the Bible. You think of this young man, David, who was merely a shepherd boy, and no one could have ever imagined that he would become king over Israel, and a great example for generations to follow. And his father even forgot about him. Oh, don't worry about my little son, David. But David then becomes king in spite of what his father thought about him. And Samuel would have passed over David. And David didn't think much would come of his life either. But David's perfect obedience preceded his perfect understanding. Or you think of Moses. Moses knows that something is wrong and this can't continue any longer. And he has this holy discontent about the fact that the people of Israel are stuck in slavery all these years in Egypt. And so he rises up with prayers and tears before his God. And he says, God, do something. Would you do something? Here I am. Even use me. But he couldn't have imagined that he would be God's mouthpiece to stand before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Because... As God came to him and asked him to be that mouthpiece, what did Moses say? He said, I don't talk too good. He said, don't you know I stutter, God? How could you possibly use me? Are you available? Perfect obedience preceded perfect understanding. You think about the growth of the early church, how it grew like wildfire, And what they say about the disciples as they were doing all these miracles and they were preaching the good news of Christ and the word of God was spreading rapidly. They said these were unschooled, ordinary, uneducated, simple men and women. What do they have to offer? But perfect obedience preceded perfect understanding. There are people I know who tell me all the time, I I can't ever give to the church. I don't have any money. There's no way I could... Would God command you to give to the spiritual house that feeds you? 
or I couldn't give sacrificially. I know I give the minimum, but I could never give sacrificially. Was God calling you to sometimes give sacrifice? I don't know how I could possibly. Perfect obedience precedes perfect understanding. I have this sin issue in my life, and it's, it's just become such a part of my life for so many years, I can't imagine living without it, so I'll just quit. I'll quit fighting against it. No, cut it off. Get together with some other brothers and sisters that'll help you cut it off. Stay in the scriptures, memorize the scriptures, obey Christ. He will give you power. Perfect obedience will precede perfect understanding. You might sense today God is inviting you to be a part of some kind of ministry, and you say, it seems so small. I love the way Mother Teresa put it. Whatever you do, whatever I do, and I know this, whatever I do will feel incredibly small. But Mother Teresa said, it's so very important that you do it anyway. Can I tell you that when I stand up here on Sunday mornings, I sometimes feel so small? What I do sometimes feels small compared to what I know some other people do. But it's important that you do it anyway. Whatever it is that God is saying, he's nudging on your heart even right now, go do this. Obedience precedes understanding sometimes. This truth was reinforced for my wife and I probably 11 years ago. We were in our old neighborhood in Lafayette, Colorado, and we just felt like the Lord was telling us, you got to get to know your neighbors better. you, you got to bring them into your homes. you you, you got to extend the love of Christ out to them. you you got to show them that you care about them. You need to show them some basic uh, demonstration of Christian love. And it was a ragtag neighborhood of all different kinds of people. And so we'd have people into our homes on a regular basis and sometimes have these little get-together parties and other times just have one or two families at a time. And uh, this one particular time, well, we had two families over and one single man who was living down the street. And we had met this single man one or two times before. I'm not sure if he had ever been in our home. But we got to the point where we were just starting to get to know each other a little bit and each sharing a bit of our stories. And all of a sudden, though, this single man starts telling us his story. And he said, you know, I used to be married, but my wife left me. And I had a son, but my wife left with my son. And I'll never get to see him anymore. And I'm thinking in this moment, my, this is level jumping, my friend. I wasn't quite ready for all this. But then he goes on, he says, uh, you know, I'm a postman, and that means that I uh, spend all my days, all my hours in a truck, basically in solitude. I have very little human interaction, and frankly, I get kind of lonely. But he said, don't feel bad for me, because it's not like I don't have anything. I do have a couple friends. I have you guys. He looked at Susie. Susie, you remember that? He looked at us and said, I have you guys. And I looked over at Susie, and I'd never seen an Indian person get so white. (laughs) And she's like elbowing me. Adrian, you're a pastor. Speak up. Cat got your tongue or something? Speak up, man. That would be a first. You got nothing to say? But I was just overwhelmed by it. I mean, it was like this was an acquaintance for me. That's it. How would God use this? The guy would speak into this man's life. You're my friends. You see, this is God's specialty. He takes the very little that we have to offer and he multiplies it far beyond what we could have imagined. I and mean, we weren't doing anything special. 
All we were doing was seeking to obey, offering a little bit of hospitality. But for some reason, God used that in his life that it spoke to him value. It spoke to him dignity. It spoke to him friendship. It spoke to him our vision statement. You matter. All people matter. And you matter to us. And friends, I I just pray that you would know this. That whatever you do, it seems small. But it's so critically important that you do it anyway. And part of God's specialty is to multiply that small offering that you have when it is coupled with obedience to do far beyond what his people could ever ask or imagine. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I'm going to ask our, uh, our worship team to come forward right now, and I, I just want to respond with worship and maintain an attitude of prayer and trusting in God and worship and honesty before God as we recognize the beauty of this truth that we're not special. We're not special. And yet God calls us special. Yet God chooses to use us for great purposes. I'm going to read a beautiful verse from 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 26 to 28. And you might just allow it to sit in your soul. And then when you're ready, you can stand and worship with us as Matt leads us out. This is the kind of verse that I would just extend my hands and worship to God and say, God, may this be true. Would you settle this into my heart? Would you make this true in my life? That I believe this of myself. That I believe this for my family. That that, that though I'm small, yet you would choose me. Though I'm lowly, yet you would use me. Brothers and sisters, just think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world. He chose the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Oh, precious Father, thank you. Precious Father, we thank you that you've chosen us from before the foundations of this world. When you saw us before we were created, you knew we weren't special, but yet you chose us. It's true that not many of us have come from a noble birth, but yet you, you chose us. You invited us in. It's true that many of us don't have a ton to offer, but you have gifted us. You have given us resources. You have given us personalities. You have given us some talents. And in your providence, you determined that when the people of God get on movement for the cause of God in the world, those talents will be multiplied for your glory and your honor and bring about a harvest. And so God, we give you glory, trusting that you're going to do that in our church, trusting that you're going to do that in our lives. We say we don't want it to be about us. We never want to be those who would boast in the things that you do. We merely want to be those who bring our little loaves and our little fishes to your throne room 
Would you use them, God? Would you use them greatly? All glory and power and honor to you forever and ever. And God's people sing.